0: Through the past um, uh, several months, um, we have been working through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, perhaps you've noticed that whether it's, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, um, whichever of the Gospels you're reading, the further you go into the Gospel, the more difficult and challenging it becomes. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, the further you go into the Gospels, the more strident uh, Jesus' enemies become and the more determined they become to trip him up and to get their hands on him. So things get more difficult for Jesus as the story goes along. But also, as the story goes along, Jesus becomes much more demanding of his followers the things that he has to teach them, the things that he encourages them to be and to do, become more difficult, more challenging, higher mountains to climb. So today, we in the 18th chapter, still, um, we find one of those teachings that that um, uh, that laid on Jesus' followers and and lays on us, um, pretty challenging expectation. A uh, pretty high bar for us to attain. So if, if you're able to stand to receive the gospel today, would you do so now? Matthew 18. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was growing up, um, we had one of those those big old um, black and white television sets in the living room, and uh, there were there were a couple of shows that um, um, my parents were reluctant to let me watch when I was a child, but somehow I got away with it. And and one of my very favorite shows, and I can still catch a rerun every now and then, but they're old black and white shows. Some of you will recognize it was a, it was a show called The Twilight Zone. Remember? Remember The Twilight Zone? Be careful if your head's shaking. I know you're as old as I am or more. Um, uh, but uh, uh, Rod Serling was the writer and the producer and the director, you remember, and he would introduce every show. And, and the shows always had a, a kind of a, an odd twist to the plot and, uh, um, but I, I enjoyed watching those things, and they were always intriguing to me. Um, and I thought that you know it's too bad Rod Serling's not around any longer because I'd like to call him. I have I have a plot for a Twilight Zone show I'd like to recommend to him. And 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 here it is. Here's what I think I think that uh, would make a good show is that everybody in the world uh, would be paired up. Now, now, not, not necessarily husbands and wives or brothers and sisters or things like that, but everybody in the world would be paired up with somebody. And, and your eternal destiny would depend not on your own behavior, but on the behavior of your partner. Ooh, would, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> wouldn't that be a great show? And, and you know, can you imagine what that would be like in the, in the program? Some people, some people would live a dastardly life and they wouldn't care because their partner was doing well and they, could, they knew they could ride to heaven on, on their, their partner's good behavior. Um, that would be interesting, but then the opposite could also be true that that you're that you're you know you're really hoping to to uh, make out well in the afterlife and so you work hard at encouraging your partner to to behave well and behave rightly and do good things and uh some of the ways you might trick your partner into being good uh would be interesting anyway i thought that would be a cool plot for a a twilight zone show that that we are Paired up with somebody else, and that our eternal destiny is somehow tied to how they live and and their behavior. And you know, it seems to me that that uh, the the plot for that show or the idea for that show really arises more from the New Testament than we'd like to think, uh, because in in the the New Testament story, Jesus is always trying to convince us. In one way or another, by one illustration or one story or another, Jesus is always trying to show us that that is indeed true. Your eternal destiny and mine are more dependent on others than we would like to think. Especially in the world in which we live, 21st century America, where, where we see ourselves more as individuals than people in any other time or culture have ever seen themselves we we live in a pretty thoroughly individually oriented society where it's easy for us to pretend it's easy for us to pretend that our life doesn't depend on anybody else and who we are and what we do and what we enjoy are 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 just for us and just ours and just our responsibility that we don't depend on anybody else in as as Jesus taught his followers. He was always showing them, trying to convince them how thoroughly and completely your life and my life are dependent not only on God, but we're dependent on each other. And in fact, our eternal destiny Our salvation is not only dependent on what we ourselves do and how we ourselves live. But our eternal destiny, our salvation is dependent upon how we impact the lives of others as well. We live in an individual or individually oriented society and time. But Jesus is always trying to demonstrate to us how inexorably... We are connected to each other and to God. And we are dependent on those connections for life and for life eternal. When Jesus addresses his followers on this day and, and his, his words to them are recorded in Matthew 18, um, he is assuming that the church of which he speaks is, is a closely knit community of committed people of faith there are not many churches that can claim that kind of environment in our age of individualism but I can't tell you how grateful and how proud I am to be part of just such a church here and now because this congregation more than any other that I have known ...can claim exactly that. A close-knit community of faithful people committed to God and committed to each other. You know, it's... um, Well, in some ways it's fortunate and in some ways it's unfortunate... ...that um, um, every time we gather here, as we did yesterday for a memorial service or a funeral... ...I am always impressed, as I was yesterday... I am always impressed with the ways this community of faith and the larger community of Mechanicsburg gathers around those beloved members of the community, those who die and those family members who are left in grief to support and comfort and encourage them. Um, no better time yesterday was there, Charlotte, than we had here. It was wonderful to see the support and the love that that Betty Weaver had had uh, um, uh, harvested throughout this community. And, and it happens so often. Evidence, sisters and brothers, of the kind of thing that Jesus encourages among us. You know, in the society in which we live, we are more apt to try to solve our differences by going to court rather than by sitting down and talking with each other. But here at First Church, in the environment that you and I work so hard to create here, we have been more successful at that than most. Talking with each other about what troubles us, about what concerns us, so that we can make not only ourselves and our own life better, but our community stronger we live in a troubling time there's a uh there's a book that was uh, that was written um a number of years ago uh by a uh, a sociologist from Penn State in fact um his name is robert putnam and uh he wrote a book called bowling alone and uh, his his thesis in this book is or what his research showed was that in the year he wrote the book um more people went to bowling alleys and bowled than 50 years before. More people were bowling now than before. But there's a difference, he said. The difference he found was that now people simply go on a lark or on a whim and they spend some time bowling. They bowl alone or with a small group. Whereas 50 years ago, people bowled in teams And, and in leagues and they bowled together. And that has made, that has made an incredible difference in the way our lives and in, in the way our, our nation and even in the ways that our churches function. Here, here are some of the things that, that he looked at and noticed that I, I thought I'd share with you today. Just a, just a couple of brief things. He says, no one is left from the Glen Valley, Pennsylvania Bridge Club. ...who can tell us precisely why or how that group broke up, even though its 40-odd members were still playing regularly as recently as 1990, just as they had done for more than half a century. The shock in Little Rock, Arkansas, the Sertoma Club there, is still painful. In the mid-1980s, nearly 50 people had attended a weekly luncheon to plan activities to help the hearing and speech impaired, but a decade later, only seven regulars continued to show up. The Roanoke, Virginia chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People had been active, an active force in civil rights since 1918. But during the 1990s, Membership withered from about 2,500 to just a couple of hundred. By November 1998, even a heated contest for president only drew out 57 voting members. VFW post-2378 in Berwyn, Illinois, was a long-bustling home away from home for local veterans and a kind of country club for the neighborhood, hosting wedding receptions and class reunions. But by 1999, membership had so dwindled that it was a struggle just to pay the taxes on their post hall, despite the fact that numerous military veterans still lived in the area. Social capital, Robert Putnam says, is disintegrating in our country. We see it, we see it abroad, and we see it in the church too. The level of, of trust in public institutions has suffered a serious erosion. You know, uh, groups and clubs have always started and, and, and declined and others have taken their places and on we've gone, but now in, in the, the, uh, environment we live in today those kinds of things are declining and going away but new ones aren't replacing them volunteer organizations are, are disappearing and not being replaced by other newer and stronger ones talk shows often trade on distrust and anger and frustration and do nothing to enhance community connections even if you listen to the nightly news it favors stories that stoke anger and frustration and distrust in a climate like that, it is more challenging for us than ever before to be the church and to do the kinds of things that Jesus says we must do if we're going to maintain our connections to each other and to God. That is when one of us is troubled by something, take it to the other folks who have caused that trouble or who, or who have most likely unintentionally caused us concern. Um, take it to the church. Talk about Talk about what is wrong and what is troubling you so that together there might be healing despite our frustrations, despite our angers, despite our conflicts. There are incredible signs of hope around us too. I, I read just uh, the other day a story of, um, uh, of a television program, not Twilight Zone this time, another kind of program which was um, uh, put together a TV show for uh, to be shown to uh young uh men and women boys and girls who were getting ready to get their driver's licenses and this was a this was a film a video to be showed to those kids before they went for their final driver's test and got their license and what this what this film showed was um, a group of Group of kids sitting in a courtroom and listening to two speakers. Uh, a man and a boy looked, looked to be father and son. Two fellas sitting in front of the group talking to them. The teenager spoke first. He never looked up at the group. He was, he never looked at the camera. His eyes he kept down, but slowly and quietly he told his story. This young man, 16 years old, told his story about something that had happened to him just when he had gotten his driver's license. He'd been driving too fast, he said, and he'd lost control. His car went off the road and collided with a tree. He managed to survive, but his passenger, his best friend, died in that wreck. He died of a broken neck. And he went on to describe quite graphically what his buddy looked like and how he felt and how he would never be able to forgive himself for what he had done. He had unintentionally and by accident killed his friend. And then, and then on the film, he sat down. And then the man sitting next to him stood up, and he turned out to be not this boy's father at all, but he turned out to be the father of the boy who had been killed. And that father spoke quietly with difficulty, but also with a great deal of dignity. He went on to share. With, with the room full of, of soon to be licensed drivers, what it would meant for him as a father and for his mother, the boy's mother, to lose their only child. He described in quite a bit of detail the kind of, the kind of young man their son was growing to be. And he went on to imagine some of the possible contributions their son could have made to the community had he lived. He pointed out how proud he had been of his son. And how proud he was then of this young man beside him who was willing to testify in this manner to other drivers in such a painful and costly but powerful way. And so there it was on this film for everybody to see how this teenage driver and his friend's father had somehow found a way not to be angry, furious at each other, determined to exact revenge for what had happened. But somehow they had found a way to be reconciled out of their mutual desire to see something positive, some saving possibility arise out of the death of this precious loved one. When I hear that something like that has happened, when I see it, I have to believe that that God has been allowed to work in in that relationship. And, and how many other ways like that can we call upon God to work and allow God to work by our focus not on anger and animosity, not on revenge, but on reconciliation? I believe that there's no more damaging failure in our church today than our failure to take seriously Jesus' instruction to reconcile ourselves to each other to seek and to practice forgiveness, to desire and foster the healing of relationships within our community of faith and within our families and and within our nation. I've seen churches deeply damaged by conflicts and broken relationships and the flat-out refusal of folks to own their anger and their hurt and then deal with them in the manner that Jesus prescribes. But I've also seen places where the love of God can be brought to bear on on families, on uh, on communities, on relationships, on churches, and the the reconciliation, the love, the kindness, the hope that um, that emanates from from that kind of commitment is is hard to quantify, um, difficult to find words to talk about how how grand it is. It's not only within our church though, but but throughout our world, in in public areas, in politics, in sports, in schools and corporations and governments and nations, we've become so accustomed to returning hurt for hurt, returning offense for offense, damaging the very fabric of life, hurting people far beyond the pain we've experienced, seeking revenge while forgetting that we are people who enjoy the benefits of God's forgiveness, God's love, God's reconciliation. All of us are tempted to strike back when we are hurt. All of us are tempted to hold on to resentments, even to the point of allowing precious relationships to be suffered. But it's abundantly clear, Jesus would have us always, he calls us to always take the first step toward reconciliation, even with those perhaps, especially with those whom we call our enemies. Well, I found out the other day that that we can even take a lesson from the trees. There's a a study that has been done not too terribly long ago um, using um, trees, of all things, trees from from pin oaks in Wisconsin to larches in the Soviet Union. Scientists have discovered that trees form underground. Tree-to-tree connections, sometimes a network that includes every tree in a grove or a region. Root grafts between trees make them not only more resilient to being blown over, they, they not only intertwine their roots so that they're more secure in the ground, but, but trees can join their roots in such a way that, that water and nutrients pass through the root systems from one tree to another. In the white pine, for example, the best-studied species, dyes and radioactive tracers have shown up moving dozens of feet across a grove between the trunks of the trees. White pine seedlings begin their life on their own, but gradually they, they are added to the grid and join with each other. Even when some trees die... In a stand of trees, some of the trunks may eventually rot and fall to the ground. But underground, the root systems still live because they are connected to each other and to the other trees in the grove. Root grafts, those kinds of connections between trees are a a marvelous image of how we in the human community and especially we in the church of Jesus Christ are called upon to live. Recognizing our connectedness, our interconnectedness is the beginning of perceiving God's presence and God's actions in our world. When we realize and begin to understand that we are connected to each other in, in those ways, the kind of ways that the roots of trees are connected, but in much deeper ways. When we recognize and understand that we are connected to each other in those ways and deeper ways, then we will see and know God at work and God loving among us and within us and around us. If you read the gospel with with that in mind, you will quickly see that this is what Jesus was about. This, above all other things, is what Jesus did. He drew people together. He drew people together, showing them how to overcome their distrusts and their conflicts. He created and helped them to recognize the connections between them and between them and God. Jesus taught them to enhance those connections and to work together as a community. Especially to address the needs of those persons who were struggling or on the fringes. As people of faith, you and I will not get anywhere... Until we recognize how we are made to be connected to each other and to God. At times when we have focused on those connections, we have succeeded and prospered because we are pulling together. Jesus, And when we are able to do that, Jesus promises that he will join the work party himself. And when two or three of us gather together in his name, doing the work of connecting with each other and staying connected, doing the work of connecting ourselves with others in need and strengthening those connections. When we gather together and do the work Jesus calls calls us to do, Jesus joins the work party. Jesus himself is part of us and our strength is is, uh, increased to equal the tasks of his calling. Let the Lord of the church work within you and among us so that our strengths might be magnified and our weaknesses diminished. Wherever two or three or more of us are determined to do the reconciling, loving, forgiving work of Jesus, he is with us, working with us, joining us together and with himself. Amen.